my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today's guest is Dennis Austin, senior columnist at the Daily Illini. (laughs) I just asked him about that. The student independent newspaper at the University of Illinois in Champaign. He's also written for the Times of Israel blog. Currently a political science major at the university, Dennis will share with us his professional and personal journeys as an Illinoisan. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> it is. Oh, I got that right. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you so much for joining me. How are things in Champagne? Did I say that correctly? Yes, Champagne. You got it right. Things in Champagne are pretty good. I will say that our campus, over 91% of the undergraduate, including me, our population is, is fully vaccinated. Okay. So that's good. This is arguably the safest place in the country. So things are back to normal, as normal as can be. Aside from that, everything's going pretty well. So is that something that was mandatory for students? Essentially, yes. Because in substitution of being fully vaccinated, you would have to undergo regular extensive testing. And there was even a stipulation added that if you were not fully vaccinated, you would have your access to technological sites uh, revoked. So access to school blackboard and those sort of accounts, you would have your privilege rights limited or restricted in some way. I see. I've been out of the U.S. now for a little over two years. You know, I keep in contact with my family and friends, but, you know, televised news can seem a little sensational. So never really quite sure what's going on. You know, you see some groups that are being quite vocal about not getting vaccinated. So it's good to hear that the school has got, you know, majority of population vaccinated. In terms of people not wanting to get vaccinated, you know, especially in our community, it's a lot of skepticism for obvious reasons, Hmm. for legitimate reasons, because of how we've been treated in the past. But not every situation is a Tuskegee experiment. So we have to go beyond being fearful because of events that happened in the past and really try to bring ourselves up to the current. So I've been fully vaccinated. I have health issues. So I got my booster shot about three weeks ago now, but I knew that I was making a decision for myself to protect me and people around me. You know, it's just being careful and trying to be safe. Yeah, you bring up some good points too about the concern, at least coming from a Black American perspective. I got vaccinated in the UK because I was recently there for five months, Mm. but it went well. I'm just going to say this to Black America. I'm not really taking you seriously if you say, I don't want to put this vaccine in my body because I'm careful with what I put in my body, but you're also in McDonald's draft. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, you know, at least be consistent. Are you a native of Illinois? From uh, Chicago. I was born and raised in the south side of Chicago. I was born on the west side, but spent my whole life on the South Side. For me personally, I began to take an interest in politics at a very early age. Like my first memory was Bush Gore 2000. I was six years old at the time. 
I was just enthralled by the drama. It just seemed very interesting. And that interest just kept building over time. And I really came into my own politically when Barack Obama was running for president. Okay. And then that's when I really started to pay attention. That is very interesting to hear at six. It seems like you locked in right away to your destiny, it sounds like. I remember my parents, I had a bedtime, but they made an exception because they were watching it too. And I just was interested by it, the spectacle, really. And so many years later, when I had the chance to organize and work in politics and actually see the spectacle in person, it was just an amazing opportunity for me. So, yeah, I've always had a, a long interest in politics. I don't know why. I was the weird teenager who would watch Meet the Press with Tim Russert. <laughs> and when he passed, Tom Brokaw and then David Gregory took over and so forth. But I just always had an interest in politics. And growing up in the, at the time, anti-Bush Democratic household, especially during the war, I really became involved around that time period. So you are a political science major. What year are you? I am a senior designated. I'm technically a super senior. I'll be graduating not this year, but next year. So either uh, fall 22 or spring 23. I see. So with that degree, with that major, where are you going to go after that, professionally speaking? I plan on law school. That's always been an interest of mine. I credit that to watching Sam Waterston on Law and Order as Jack McCoy for several years as one of my influences. But also growing up in the South Side of Chicago, you see a lot of crime, you see a lot of drugs, you see a lot of poverty. And do I want to be the problem or do I want to be the solution? I do have my own interests. There's other areas of law that have grabbed my attention, corporate law. There's also working for the government. There's also criminal defense. There's various different fields where I can really test you know, my interest and, and see what I really like. Yeah, law school is definitely the plan. You mentioned being from Chicago and a friend here in Stockholm in Sweden recently suggested that I watch Rhythm and Flow, the <laughs> reality show. And so again, me being outside of the U.S. for two years, like even hearing your accent, you know, I hear some Americans here. There's not a lot, but, you know, I'm more aware of the accents from my home country. But yeah, you talk about being from Chicago, and I just saw the episode where they went through Chicago, and what I noticed is Atlanta, New York, LA, where I, I know LA because I lived there a long time, but Chicago, it's interesting to see that energy and notice that there were different energies based on whichever city they were in. Man, I could spend the whole day talking about Chicago. You're right. It's a lot of different energies in different places. If you go to Chicago and you hop on the CTA, and you begin at 95th and Dan Ryan. You go all the way north from 95th, you will see communities change. You will see demographics change. You will see class and income changes. But what it also shows to me, having lived in Chicago for such a long time, are the clear areas of segregation. Not segregation in the sense of the 1960s, but just clear economic and racial and social segregation where African-Americans are more so in the densely populated areas, particularly higher levels of poverty. Then you have the middle and working classes were somewhat diverse, but still somewhat segregated and apart. 
So that happens to be Irish, Italians, and Catholics, more so Bridgeport, more so Southwest side, you have the Polish, Latinos, of course, Little Village, and yuppie white Americans pretty much own all of the North side and downtown. So yeah, Chicago's a great city, but when they say it's a diverse city, and it is diverse, and there are diverse circles and diverse organizations, it's diverse to a degree. I liken it to my community college days where, sure, we had a diverse campus, but the English hung out with the English, the Caribbeans hung out with the Caribbeans, the white kids hung out with the white kids, and the black kids hung out with the black kids. So yeah, it was diverse, but rarely did you ever see a cross-section of these groups interact with each other. That's a little bit troubling to me. So yeah, Chicago's a wonderful city, There's a lot to do. I love it. From there, I will rep it all day. But you can definitely see a lot of those factors play out. You know, I'm not settled here as of yet. So I've been in different parts, but it kind of reinforces for me, I believe, how intentional all this is because it's not that different here. I'll say here in Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden, when you talked about the train, you know, they have a really good subway system here and buses and all that. And you notice from the south, the central part, and as you go north, like a lot of the immigrants, and when I say immigrants, I mean more like Mediterranean or Syrian or people from different countries in Africa, you start to notice that they've been concentrated more north and, and more in the suburbs. I can't speak for Europe, but I can speak for America, particularly Chicago. It's just especially against the politics of it, of redistricting, for example. Um, you get into the history of, of redlining. When you see how once thriving neighborhoods where you had middle class and working class families were just decimated by racism, were decimated by other factors. And now you're left with the remnants of that. So I think oftentimes when people talk about racism in America, and why it's so hard for them to understand the concept of systemic racism. Oh, there has to be a sign that says blacks and whites. That's not how racism works. No. There's more to it than the sign that says blacks sit here and whites sit here. It's policy. And unfortunately, because you've had a degradation of duty from politicians and, and public officials, you've now seen what is left, what that inaction has done, And this now brings us to present-day Black America in some parts of the country where we're having this conversation where in actuality, we should have had this conversation and taken steps to address it a very long time ago. As somebody who is as knowledgeable as you are, how do you navigate amongst these different groups? Or are you able to? It's not something I do on purpose. It's just I've always been somewhat of an extrovert. So I like to talk, if you haven't been able to gather that in the first few minutes of the conversation. (laughs) I I, I like to get to know people. I like to get to know stories. I had white friends growing up. I had friends that were Latino growing up. I had friends, Asian, Indian, especially when you get to college and you start meeting a whole lot of people, you really start to expand. And I just never restricted myself or limited myself more appropriately who I was associating with, because I feel that having all these different experiences, I learned something new. I learned something new about culture. I learned something new about history. I learned something new about the person I'm speaking with. I have an opportunity to 
not just acquire knowledge, but to also understand the world a little bit better. You know, for me, it's a blessing. That sounds really good, especially in the fact that you're going into politics, into the legal field. It doesn't hurt. I just don't get how you can truly learn by staying in your own bubble, be it by race, ideology, whatever. I think the human experience was not meant to be dormant. It's meant to go out and explore. You can relate to that. You're in Sweden for that reason. You <laughs> wanted to explore the world. You wanted to see, okay, I've lived in America. Let me see what's on the other side of the world. Let me see how other people interact with each other and live. I just don't know how you can go throughout this world and just not want to experience more than your bubble. I think you lose a lot more than you gain there. My perception is most people, it's, I'm assuming, comfort level. A portion of it, I think, is upbringing. As far as race, if I don't see people that look similar to me, then I'm not going to hang around those people. And then I think underneath that is ideologies and all that other stuff that I think keeps these systems in place. I went to a community college in the middle of bumfuck New York State, and it was predominantly white and conservative and Trump supporters. And I got to know a lot of different people, and it was challenging. But it's also an appreciation for me because I learned a lot. Why do people think the way they do? What goes into that process? That's an education. You offer a solution that's so simple, but I think it's so complicated for people at the same time. (laughs) So you are a full-time student and you're a writer. How do you juggle your time? You know, I remember my old professor at my alma mater said, um, Dennis, you are shit with timing. And I'm like, you are right. I am terrible with timing. Mm-hmm. It's just about scheduling. I learned to write things down more. I like to take out a block of time, sit, and just think. Not long, about 20, 30 minutes about what I want to write about. And then I'll block out time later that week and find some reading material. And then later that week, I'll block out time and get starting on my writing. Write a draft, write a final one, get it done, and, and move on. But it's just about being responsible. Every day you wake up is an opportunity. So I've always kind of had that model in the back of my mind. Sounds like learning the art of prioritization. You know, I discovered you, as you know, through the article that I found that you wrote for the Daily Illini. (laughs) Is that correct? (laughs) The Daily Illini. Uh, Daily Illini. I will get it right by the end of this. You, You will get it. Trust me. How did you discover me, by the way? I was curious. I'm like, how did you find this article? I didn't think it would get traction. I'm surprised. I didn't graduate with a journalism degree. That was my original major years ago. Mm. So I know that I always have to be constantly looking up things and looking up people's of interest, you know, and looking up Black, gay, American men. I came across your article. You know, it's a topic, of course, that we need to talk about more, but more than anything, it was in how you wrote it that really stood out to me. And I'll just say for the audience, the name of the piece is White Gay Culture's Toxicity Resembles Racism. And I thought that just really captured, with no BS, what you were going to talk about. Yeah, I, you know, when I wrote that article, because, you know, due to the coronavirus, a lot of Pride events were canceled or pushed back. And Pride here in Champaign is in every September. So 
I felt that it was timely for the community, but also it had a national message or international message since it reached Sweden. And I just felt that this was an issue that needed to be addressed. Far too often in the gay community, I think we trick ourselves into believing we're this liberal bastion of acceptance, but some of our members don't even accept others who are gay. So how the hell can you call yourself a community that appreciates diversity when even you don't even appreciate diversity in your own personal life? So that was just something puzzling to me. I'm a generation or more ahead of you. And what kind of saddens me is how this, you know, racism is generational, that this is still a conversation, a challenge that we have to deal with. But I just want to read quickly one of the things that stood out to me that you wrote is, contrary to what some may believe, there does lie beneath the culture of queerness an insidious obsession with whiteness to the point of idolatry. And again, similar to your title, I just thought that I just really put it all there with no apologies, but very um, eloquently too. Well, when I've talked to gay people, and I've had several conversations with gay people about this, one guy I was speaking with said that he doesn't date black men. And I'm like, okay, fair, whatever. Well, I wanted to know why, because you get me to this point, now I'm digging further. I'm going to get the shovel out. I'm going to start doing some digging. I'm going to start doing some finding because I'm really curious now. What he told me was the most crazy inane thing I'd ever heard. It's just this uncomfortable obsession with whiteness, as if whiteness is the pinnacle of all that is to have in society. And this isn't just something you see in the gay community. I've spoken to descendants of immigrants from Asia and India, uh-huh. particularly those cultures. And they have told me that in conversations with their grandparents and parents, oftentimes they were told, don't date black men. White man is preferable. And I believe it's because culturally we have held up the white image as this earthly, all-knowing, all-being, all-beautiful facade. You see it pretty much everywhere. It's a lot to do with the image of the black male. And I talk about this in my article too. The black male, the black female, the black child. What have we always been stereotyped as? Unattractive, less than, violent, dangerous, deadly, uneducated, stupid, whatever you want to call it. That has always been the stereotype attached to black people. But white people, you know, Cinderella, the princess, Jesus was from the Middle East, but he's portrayed as this yuppie white dude from Bucktown. But you also have to take into consideration the responsibility of gay media. I'm not saying it's their fault entirely, but look at movies. So when we talk about why this is an issue and why I said that it's almost the point of idolatry, that's all people are exposed to. And I feel that for a community that prides itself on being diverse. But if you're a white gay dude and you post up a picture, a black photo, during the George Floyd protest last summer, but your entire Instagram feed is with white men, I'm going to question that. That is just incredible how we're so hell-bent on preaching to others why our movement is important, why it's important for gay marriage, why it's important for gay parents to adopt, and we can't even give our own members the benefit of the doubt. That's just the most disturbing thing out of this. 
you touched on something about imagery, and I think that's part of what it comes down to. I recently came across an article, a writer who talked about entertainment industry and how it educates us, and I completely agree with her. I always say that entertainment educates, and one of the reasons that fuels me for this particular platform and reaching out to guests like you is that you know, I want to see all of our colors because our images have been so limited. You know, you touched on some things too about the fetishization of specifically Black men and being hypersexualized in the dating world. Yeah, you bring up some really good points that I agree with and have experienced. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've experienced it too, especially on those apps, Grindr being the most notable, you'll get a random message. And someone will text you BBC with a question mark. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> First of all, I wish I had a tenth of that person's confidence, just saying. Uh, but it's not something you just see on apps. I've had it happen in person. I know other people who've had it happen to them at clubs. Wait, what? How the fuck did we get from talking about cute kitten videos? Yeah. So it just takes you back by surprise because it was coming out of left field. And you just see that they don't see you as a person with interest with aspirations, with hopes, dreams, failures, everything else human beings go through, they see you as a sexual object meant to satisfy them. Possession. Yeah, possession. So, you know, this is what the gay community has produced. And, you know, my biggest grievance is when they try to, not to sexualize you, but to stereotype you. Oh, so you're a thug. Not talking to you, trying to figure things out, not trying to learn who you are. They just look at you and judge you as a black man, and you have to be a thug with a 12-inch dick. You look at as a toy. You remind me when online dating really became popular. You know, you're chatting and met up at a coffee shop, and I don't know if you're the same as me. I overthink things. I'm like, oh, I should answer this way. I want to show the best representation of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were chatting. I thought everything was fine. And then he was like, oh, so how was it growing up in the hood? And the funny thing was, I didn't automatically default to this guy as being a racist. who's He's trying to fuel some fantasy. I was like, was that mm-hmm. something I checked on the, on the website? Because I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your article, I think, is always timely, unfortunately, but, you know, timely now because we are in a space with the public murders that we know about in the last couple of years. I'm really glad that pieces like yours are out there to keep this conversation going, and especially this one because it is focused on the LGBT community. And I'll say for me, it's a really good piece to share, not just within our community as far as LGBT, but also outside of it within the Black community, because I have gotten surprised from Black people that assume, uh, as you said, because there's this public image of we're this rainbow and we're all together that, oh, I didn't know there was racism in the gay community. It's like, oh, I think it's probably worse because it's unchecked in a way that it's not in the mainstream community. Some gay white dudes know this, but the problem is, is that not too many of them put other contemporaries of theirs into check. You have a friend that says something, you just laugh it off. Oh, that's just Jim being Jim. No, Jim's being a piece of shit and you need to call him out on that. That's not cool. And I think a lot of that has to do with holding each other accountable. And I think in the gay community, part of the reason why this has gone on check for so long is because we were coming out of this abyss 
of HIV AIDS, which killed a lot of people. Then you have past that, these notable incidents, the Matthew Shepard killing. Before then, don't ask, don't tell. You having all of these chapters in history, Lawrence v. Texas, you know, so all of these chapters in gay history. And I think we've got to a point where we will say, you know what, we're past that. We're past all of that serious stuff. Now we're more accepted into the mainstream. Now we feel more open and honest with each other and we can live our lives freely. But I think in doing so, we may have forgotten to deal with some core issues that were just left below the surface. And a part of that happens to deal with race. So in writing this piece in particular, what has been the response that you've gotten from within or outside of the LGBT community? I've had people say, bravo. I've had people say, thank you for writing. There were two comments. One guy said that, well, Grindr is not a dating app. He says something to the effect of, you should look at the root cause of the problem, which in actuality it is. See, that's a deflection tactic. That's what people do when they're on the hot seat. You're making valid points. They can't offer up a well-spoken or well-written response. So they'll try to deviate from that and move the goalpost. There was another comment by a white woman who said that I was a black supremacist and that it sounded rapey, which is not surprising because white women have always had a tendency to sexualize and falsely accuse black men for being sexual deviants. That's the response on the other side that I have expected because this is what happens when you put a segment of white culture, gay or straight, on the hot seat. You have a segment of white society that presents an aversion to that. Because to them, there is no racism, there is no colorism, there are no isms, there's no racist cops, and they're not in tune with the experiences of not just Black America, but everyone else who doesn't live like them. I can't speak for Eric. I'm not in Sweden, (laughs) you know? I don't live in Sweden. I've never visited Sweden. So I can't speak for your experience. I can't tell you what you feel or what you don't feel. But you have white people who feel confident that they can tell us how we feel and act. And you have more black voices gaining mainstream attention who are not willing to hold back. And I said this quote during the um, George Floyd protest, We're a new generation, niggas. We don't care if you like us or not. We're going to say what we're going to say. If you don't like it, you kiss our ass. Have you seen the Dave Chappelle, his most recent Netflix special? Yes, I have. Uh, Of course, I was hearing stuff, but then I was like, okay, I need to kind of do my own investigation and see what are Black LGBT people saying. And I got onto a couple of YouTube sites and kind of agreed to what they said, but I want to get your take on it. And I'll kind of, if it's okay, share my perception of it. Oh, that's so many thoughts. The first thought that came to my mind was if you laughed at the nigger jokes, why is it trans jokes? Mm. Like Dave Chappelle, his first foremost skit, if you remember, was Clayton Bixby. He was a black man that was blind and didn't know he was black and thought he was a white supremacist. And people laughed at it. One of my former supervisors from the Sanders campaign in 16 is trans. He transitioned from a female to a male. And he gave me 
probably the best response out of all this mess because it was nuanced. I agree with most of it, and those are pretty much summed up a lot of my thoughts. You have to be careful when you have a community that's actively being disenfranchised. You know, what part is comedy and what part is, okay, you crossed a line. I have a hard time thinking that he really did anything that wrong because I'm looking at this from the perspective of, he's made jokes about black people. Not all black people liked his style of comedy, let's just be honest. I don't know if you've watched it before, it's called The Boondocks. One of the funniest animated series of all time. And you had people saying that, well, both shows stereotype black people. Okay, yes, there are stereotypes involved. I'll admit to that. It's more of a deeper message than just a stereotype. Yeah, I agree. And especially one episode of The Boondocks mentioned R. Kelly. And uh, the character Riley goes on to say, not every nigga is Nelson Mandela. So, you know, in between the bits of comedy, there was a greater message being sent. So I think that was Chappelle's special. I don't think he hates the LGBTQ community, but I think perhaps maybe he thinks, man, they accelerated so fast in this country in terms of mainstream acceptance in a way that perhaps the civil rights movement to an extent hasn't yet done. I also think you have to be careful with saying certain things because again, trans people are being actively disenfranchised. So you don't want to inadvertently contribute to that. Yeah. I'm not really centered on one thought. It's very nuanced to me. I think nuance is the perfect way to describe it. Yeah, like you said, he was trying to highlight how the mainstream or quote-unquote white LGBT community has gotten so many successes collectively. The thing that kind of intrigued me and one of the guys that I found on YouTube talked about it was that in both these conversations within the mainstream LGBT community and the mainstream Black community is I don't see anybody publicly at least asking those of us who are both of those our take on this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I notice all the time. It's about race or when non-Black people in the gay community are talking about certain things. It's like, well, I am one of you too. And then the same on the Black end when they talk about things. 2008, before we legalized gay marriage throughout the country when in California, they voted it down. I remember that. And I heard amongst white people like, oh, the black people voted this down. It was like, one, we don't have enough numbers to do that. Mm -hmm. I think it was just the first time they became aware that because we are Americans too, we can be just as conservative. Yep. That particular event let me know for the first time clearly that those of us who are at the intersection of these two identities, these two life experiences, I don't think we ever get counted in these conversations and these discourses. We don't. This goes back to trying to speak on behalf of us without knowing what we feel or think about something. Liberals in general tend to think that all Black people are just liberal. But no, back to the point, you know, I think Dave Chappelle did what he set out to do. And that was, of course, cause controversy. Not all of what he said was wrong. He touched on racism in the LGBT community. How many people from that are talking about that? You don't want to talk about these other things he brought up that we have spent time on this podcast talking about. If you're going to dissect this man, have a fair analysis of it is what I'm asking. Because in doing so, you also silence the voices of people in our community who are not white. And people haven't really realized that. Those are my thoughts on it. No, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Who was Dennis as a little boy? Oh, man. 
So when I started reading, my mom, you remember this, hooked on phonics. Yeah, yeah. She got me hooked on phonics. And once I started learning how to read, I would just bug people. I would just be annoying as hell. Like, my sister would come in the door from work and I'd be like, watch me read this book. And they would have to sit down and watch me read. Because, you know, I grew up where my mom dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. My father has spent much of his adult life as a substance abuser. So for her, education was a way out. And at a very early age, she instilled that in us. You have to get an education. And part of the reason why she was so keen on having her Black sons read, especially, you know, me and my older brother, was because of the stereotypes of Black men. When my brother was a freshman at DePaul, he had a white girl, I swear to God, this is what he told me, who walked up to him and said, you're from Inglewood? I didn't know people from Inglewood could read. That's what we had to deal with. So when I was younger, we spent a lot of time reading, writing. As a kid, I was just always inquisitive. I liked to run around. I liked to play. I had a wrestling ring set that my niece broke, which I still have a grudge against her over 20 years later. It was a nice WWF ring set. It was nice. And she stepped through it. And I want my money back. Oh, no. I was mad as hell, man. I was crying. You know, when I was a kid, I was watching wrestling with my dad or my brother, mm -hmm. which I shouldn't have because wrestling in the 90s was like watching Jerry Springer on steroids. You saw everything. But, uh, you know, um, yeah, as a kid, I was just always up to stuff. I always wanted to learn. My mom would take me on walks and we'd pick up leaves. And we would talk about colors of the leaf and what the leaf was shaped like. And it was an almanac that she used to have. And she used to have me read some pages in the almanac and just write a book report every Saturday. And I didn't like it at the time, but of course, as I'm now older, I appreciate it more. Yeah, she's planted those seeds for you. I was really into televangelism. Really? I would mimic the preachers. I would get like a Bible and just mimic what they were doing. I asked them, I'm like, did you put me up to that? And they're like, no, you just started doing it. We were members of a church and I gave a sermon, like a, you know, they have like youth junior sermons. You'd go up there and speak for like two minutes which I do say was good because I'm great with public speaking. So, you know, a lot of those seeds were really planted when I was very young. Didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but now that I'm older, but she encouraged me. You know, she's like, if you want to speak at church, I'm not going to force you. Go right ahead and do it. That's good. That reminds me of James Baldwin when he was young. He got into that, I think, for a period of time. I had some struggles, too, as I got older. Um, I dropped out of high school. There's a lot of stuff going on at home at the time. It was just stressful. But the one thing that kept me busy, which I appreciate now, is the time I was able to take in going and working politics. I did campaign work for Rahm Emanuel. I got a chance to meet Barack Obama. And then the next year, I went to New Hampshire and worked for Bernie Sanders. While I did have a lot of ups and downs in that period, that was the consistent thing that kept me sane because I was doing something I liked. When did you discover your gift for writing? I don't know if it's a gift because I want to be humble here. <laughs> Internally, I'm like, it's a gift, you know. I've always had people tell me that you should be a writer. When I was at my old community college, one of the professors there, we were talking about career options. I'm like, oh, I'm going to Illinois after I leave here and then I'm going to law school after. She's like, have you considered writing? And I'm like, uh, not really. 
When I was younger, we used to read the Chicago Sun-Times a lot. Tribune, too, would mostly reveal Sun-Times on so One of the columnists for the Sun-Times was Jay Marriott. He was a sports columnist. And I would mimic his sports columns. Just do it. I would watch a basketball game and try to write a sports column. And keep in mind, I'm like 10, 11 years old. Writing has always been something to me that I just got. I don't know why. I just get writing. Writing is a blank canvas. And I'm able to paint and weave the story any way I want to. And just to take the reader along for that journey. That's why I try to do with my articles. I want to take you along for a journey. I want you to enjoy the ride, ups and downs, and then the conclusion is satisfying. Ultimately, you had an experience reading that, that it instilled some emotion into you. I want you to read an article and go, I may disagree with the premise, but I've engaged with the writer. I found myself at times debating what the writer was saying. As I got older, I really started getting into reading other columns. Paul Krugman was someone I would read. Uh, Thomas Friedman is someone else I would read. He writes mostly autobiographies, but Walter Isaacson style. I read Kissinger by Walter Isaacson, which is a great autobiography, mm -hmm. great biography of Henry Kissinger uh, and just many others who I would read and just try to take a little bit from them. Christopher Hitchens is another one. My thing is, what can I take from people I've been influenced by and try to make it my own? So that's what I try to do when I write. You described that very beautifully. I thought, wow, that's a beautiful soundbite. <laughs> And I agree with you because I, I love writing too. I've done it off and on throughout my life. So I, I felt that when you described it. So to kind of touch on, since this podcast has gay in the title, when did you become aware of that part of yourself? I was 16. 16, okay. But the funny thing is, okay, there are two stories to this. One, my mom says she kind of always knew. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me earlier? It's <laughs> just like, like, hey... All right, you're 12 now, but you're gay. Done. She said that she always suspected that I was gay. My uncle, I used to watch the Teletubbies when I was a kid. And he said this as an innocent joke. He was just trying to be funny. He told my mom, he's like, sis, if you keep him watching the Teletubbies, he's going to turn out gay. You proved the right. You proved the conservatives <laughs> right. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm not <laughs> keeping this in the podcast. <laughs> he wasn't being homophobic. You have to realize... My family, we joke. So he was just making a joke. He wasn't trying to be rude or anything. But yeah, so, you know, I, I knew when I was about 16 and I did a bizarre thing looking back. I called a priest. That's how much in denial I was. I did not want to accept that. And you also have to consider what that was like for me then. Because while we were still getting to that point, it was a great degree of stigma attached to it. You would read stories of young gay kids killing themselves. There was one story of a college student. His roommate had recorded him and his companion having sex. He leaked that. The kid killed himself as a result. I remember that story. So you say 16, were there any specific events that were going on around that time where like, it was crystal clear then? I will say that when you spend time looking at the football players and you're distracted by the <laughs> uniforms, there might be a little bit more to that. 
<laughs> I'm just saying. As a teenager, you start having awareness. Like, why am I staring at this guy in the street? I would just find myself looking at other guys. And you start really coming to terms with it. And I was like, okay, I am gay. And my family had no problem with it. You know, that was the least of their worries. My mom's major worry was, and you've probably had this same conversation too, you are a black man in America. You're also a black male who is gay. Something that certain parts of our community do not understand. If a gay white man walks down the street, for the most part, depending, they're not gonna know he's gay. They're gonna know he's white. And in a lot of circles, that is the determining factor for, for everything. I don't have that same benefit of the doubt when I'm walking down the street. People see a black man. Even in the gay community, yeah, it's the same. Exactly. So for my mom, that was her concern. It's really great to hear that you have that support within your family. Your story of becoming aware reminds me, my friend from high school, he said around eight, being on the baseball field. And then the next thought was, oh, macaroni and cheese. Yeah, we're having craft macaroni and cheese for dinner. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I remember one time I was looking at a guy and going, God, he's hot. I'm thinking, nigga, what's wrong with you? He's not, he's ugly. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, fuck, that's out of left field. Look at the female waitress taking your order. Divert her. Well, that too. I remember those moments of saying, I got to do it like I hear the guys doing. Finally realizing if I'm treating this determination to be attracted to a woman, like it's a science project, that might mean I'm gay. Mm-hmm. It's not that complicated. I wanted to um, ask a little bit because you were really young. On the Times of Israel, there was a 2014 article you wrote about the African asylum seekers in Israel and the reports of the abuses they were having. How did it come about with you writing for them? I knew someone who was very plugged in in the Zionist movement at the time. He got me set up, credit to him. He got me linked up with the TLI. I got started with them. I did write about the asylum seekers in Israel. At the time, there were stories where you were here of these and read these encampments of people being hit with Molotov cocktails and people protesting. The asylum seekers. The asylum seekers, yes. I just felt like for people who have been long discriminated against, why would you implicated on someone else. And that was the main crux of my article. And it wasn't all of them. I don't want to say it was every single Israeli, because there were some Israelis who are organizations who do work with African asylum seekers. So credit to them. My perception is, and this is not me elevating myself above, but you touched on it, I think, earlier in the interview, is that I don't think most people know how to or give themselves permission to walk themselves through that thought process. It's like, if I didn't experience it, then I don't care. My whole point with that article was, it's bad enough that people are coming from politically unstable countries. Don't make it worse for them. Your article just kind of made me think of my perceptions of things here with people who uh, have come here probably as asylum seekers, as some of the challenges that they face. Uh, Before the recording, you asked me how it is as a Black person here. I do notice when I speak that there's an energy shift and I notice that I'm treated differently. Maybe possibly they're thinking, oh, you're not one of them. Mm -hmm. 
So as a out black gay writer, what's been some of your experiences um, within the LGBT community, either professionally, you touched on a little bit personally, but maybe just a little bit on that professionally speaking. I professionally haven't had many issues. Once I get an assignment, at least for writing, you don't really collaborate, you collaborate with your editor, that's about it. Um, but professionally, it's been pretty good. I think for me, I've had the benefit of working around more diverse circles. They were folks that were aware who actually knew what was going on. While they couldn't completely identify, they were at least aware. And that made it easier. So I've never had bad professional experiences with the LGBT community. But personally, there, there's been some times where I've had to just snap off at people. Well, I wanna say that I really, really enjoyed this interview and I learned a lot and I really like your energy and your intellect is right there up front. And, you know, again, with this particular platform, I hope that I can continue with promoting individuals like you because you're that type of person that I would like to see more of out there in public. You know, thank you, Eric. I looked up your show. I like what you do. Oh, thank you. You are bringing stories that people otherwise wouldn't hear. I've seen musicians, musicians on your show, lawyers, organizers. You're showing a side of Black LGBT that people don't necessarily know about. And that's in due part because most LGBT media, the consumer base is white, the content is white. So it's great to see a space where those of us who are actively engaging and doing our own thing and trying to leave a positive uh, legacy are being highlighted because that's not something you see in the mainstream gay community. That's not even something you would normally see in non-white gay circles. So to have this platform created is a good thing. And I hope it gets off the ground, especially for that gay kid that might be listening to this who's black and is struggling your platform may actually make a difference. So I, I hope to see this take off. It is stories like yours that I believe can make it possible. So I thank you again. Where can we find you online? You can find me at the Daily Illini, dailyillini.com. Illini, I heard it. <laughs> you got it right. You said by the end of this show, you get it right. So you got it. I don't write for the Times of Israel often, as you could probably tell, but I do sneak in stories periodically so catch me on the times of israel okay i'll make sure to add those when this uploads keep doing the good work and i just hope any black gay kid that listens to your content i hope they walk away from it with a positive experience thank you for spending time with us if you enjoyed this episode please rate comment and subscribe share with your friends too you can also follow us on instagram at our black gay diaspora and on twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.